Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to those who are on site and those who are joining us online as well. We're truly glad to have you with us at West Meadows once again this Sunday. And if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know that we have been walking for the past four weeks, now five weeks today, through uh, the first number of chapters in the book of Exodus. And we've seen so far this amazing story of Moses and the Israelites and how God has been moving in powerful ways in their midst. They've been experiencing the power of the presence of God in their lives. And one of the amazing things about this is as, as we're reading this story, as we're, as we're retelling and remembering this journey that these people went on, don't lose sight of the fact that this is the very events. These are the stories that shape, powerfully shape, and identify this people as the people of the one true God. An amazing story that we're going through they, that they retell for centuries and centuries, generations and generations, and we ourselves are looking back upon right now as well. But as amazing as these events are that's taking place in their lives, it's really only a few days into the journey, and what starts happening? They start to grumble. (laughs) They start to murmur. We see more of that in our story that we're going to look at today. They start this grumbling and muttering against Moses. And man, I feel for Moses sometimes. It must have been so hard for him to be the leader of these people. I can't imagine at the best of times trying to take this ragtag procession through the wilderness. And mind you, Moses had been a shepherd for 40 years. He knew the wilderness. He knew what it was like to live and to try to corral and and shepherd sheep together, even stubborn, temperamental sheep. He was familiar with that. He spent 40 years doing that. And he would take that any day over what he was dealing with now, with these people that he was leading through the desert now. Perhaps you've been in a group before yourselves, or maybe you've even been the leader of a group where you can see all the amazing things going on around you, all these incredible events taking place all around you, but then there's always that negative net. There's always that Debbie Downer in the group who's got to bring up just some little picky, pesky little situation that seems to erase all of the good. I remember when I was thinking about that, I remember a number of years back when, when Nadine and I took our kids to Disneyland. The happiest place on earth, they say, right? And all the marketing, make all your dreams come true. The whole family went. There, Nadine and I and, and Sam and Kaylina and Joshua and my mom and dad came with us. And we had this great family time with rides and food and character signings and photographs. And there's the parades and the fireworks. Just this, the whole Disneyland experience. To this day, for our daughter Kaylina, it's like her favorite place in the entire world. If she could pick any vacation to go on, she will still, to this day, pick Disneyland as her location. An amazing event, incredible experience. And as we're leaving Disneyland on the very first day, full of energy and excitement of what we've experienced, anticipating the days ahead, Joshua simply speaks up and goes, well, that didn't make all my dreams come true. (laughs) Thanks for coming out, Eeyore. Appreciate you being here. (laughs) But that's, that's how we ended our first day. Maybe you've been there. Because we all do this, like we all play the murmuring Murray at some point in some situation where there's so much good going on, we're in this great event, we're in the midst of, and then we find a way to be the murmuring Murray. I was guilty of it this week. One example, I thought of a number of examples, but I'll just share one with you. Earlier this week, I was driving home from the gym in the morning, and the person ahead of me didn't realize it was a 60 zone. 
And they're going way too slow for my liking. And I'm thinking, come on, I've got places to be. I've got, I've got things to do. Get going. Do you not know we're in a 60 zone? Completely forgetting the fact that I just left a gym where I can have a membership. I just forgot the fact that because I go to the gym, by God's blessings, I can enjoy good life, good health in my life. I'm in a vehicle that is running well. I can afford to put gas in the tank. And, and oh, did I completely forget the beautiful sunset that was coming up in the midst of that moment? You see, sometimes we, we tend to do this ourselves. And this was the attitude of the Israelites as they were wandering even just a few weeks into their journey. Now, I'm not suggesting that Israelites didn't have legitimate problems. I'm not saying that their, that their situations and needs weren't legitimate. They absolutely were. They, they were slaves in Egypt. That's a problem, right? They, they were being chased by an Egyptian army. That's an issue. They were in the desert with no water. Their food is about to run out. Those are things worth bringing up, right? You see, their, their inventory of the situation was correct. That wasn't the problem. Their inventory of the situation was correct, but, but the issue was their perspective or their, their, their attitude towards the situation was more of the problem. And so these people were experiencing the power of the presence of God all around them. They were no longer slaves in Egypt. They had been freed, rescued from the army that was chasing them. Yeah, they're in the desert, but they've got a guide. And, and not just any guide, like a pillar of fire is guiding them through the wilderness. When they were thirsty, they had water. When they were hungry, they had food. When they are tired, they had rest. In the midst of all these things, what we can see from, from our perspective looking in that they kind of missed, what we can see is the providing nature of God's care for his people, where he sees their needs. He knows the legitimacy of their needs. He brought them into the desert after all. He's the one who led them there. He knows they need food. He'll provide a way. But here's the thing. But he provides in a way that not only addresses the physical need within them, which actually in their mind is a primary concern, but that physical need they have in God's perspective is actually secondary. You see, he knows they have a need and he's going to meet their need, but he meets their need in a way that addresses the primary issue. And the primary issue is the condition of their heart toward him and toward his chosen leader for them. And that brings us to Exodus chapter 16. I invite you to, to turn to Exodus 16 if you would. If you want to grab a pew Bible, it's on page 57 in the pew in front of you. And we read that at this point, God has brought them to a place called Elim. And Elim is like the Disneyland resort of the desert. It is this lush, well-watered region in the midst of barrenness. And as they get to this place, it is filled with palm trees and there's springs, meaning there's enough fresh water for everybody. There's green space amidst the barren brownness, meaning that there is shade and peaceful provision for all of these people. Then in Exodus 16, we see that it's not long that they're in this beautiful oasis. It's not long till the grumbling begins. Read with me starting in verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, which is where they're heading towards. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There, oh, back in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food that we wanted. But you brought us out here to, to this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. 
They've been in the desert six weeks. It's a miracle they're still alive, right? Like there's a reason that there's limited vegetation and animals that live in the desert. It's a harsh environment. In here, they have survived it for six weeks. But their food supplies start to run out. And as their food starts to run out, they start to have this fear of the prospect of starving to death. And so the grumbling in their stomachs, which is legitimate, becomes vocalized against Moses in a way that is not legitimate. Even a little bit surprising, they basically say, I don't know if it's the hot sun or if it's a lack of food, but they basically say to each other, remember the all-you-could-eat buffets we had in Egypt? Oh, all the meat and the, the fish and the melons and the cucumbers and the garlics and the waiters with the pepper they put on when you wanted some pepper at the start. Oh, man, in Egypt, we had it all. You know, if I could pick a time and a place for where God was going to kill me, I'd pick a full-bellied Egyptian slave. <laughs> That's what I'd pick. And not this desert wasteland that Moses has brought us out into. Now, the Lord sees their need, <laughs> and he hears their complaints. And he decides that this might be a good opportunity perhaps to, to test and, and to teach them a lesson about trust and obedience. You see, that's important to understand because God very simply could have just seen the problem and heard their cry and then, and then just resolved the issue. And then life would have continued on. But, but he did that once before. Actually, he did that nine times before. Remember, in Egypt, he, that's how he handled Pharaoh. Remember how that went. Pharaoh had a plague, which would be a problem if you have a plague upon your city. And then Pharaoh says, Moses, pray to your God for me. And, and Moses prays, and God brings relief. And then when Pharaoh feels relief, what happened? His heart got hard. He turned inward. He had a problem. He felt the relief, and he turned inward. His heart became hard. God's already done that. And see, God's not ignoring or denying the problem in the equation. He sees their need for it. He hears their cry for it. But he not only wants to solve the hunger issue, he wants to solve something of greater prime concern for him. See, he's more concerned about the heart condition that they have. Because if their heart turns hard, if their heart turns inward, it affects their relationship with him. And it affects their relationship with his chosen leader for them. So he has a plan. He has a plan on how he's going to meet both of these needs. He is going to feed their bodies physically, but he's also going to nourish their hearts as well. And we pick this up in verse 11, where we read this. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard their grumbling. So have we. <laughs> I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them that at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know, and here's the key part, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And that evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew upon the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, what is it? What is this? What is it? For they didn't know what it was. And Moses told them, Moses said to them, he said, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Again, we see and they experience this miraculous provision of God. As God cares for his people. As the sun sets, the quail suddenly appear throughout the camp. And those who had nets ran and grabbed them. Those who didn't just simply used their hands. And they caught these birds. They prepared them for meals. And what did they do that evening? They sat around pots full of meat. And they enjoyed the quail. 
the very thing they've been complaining about, the thing that they thought they had back in Egypt, God provides for them in the wilderness as they sat around and they feasted on quail that night. They slept well because their bellies were full. But you know what happens when you have a big meal at night and then you go to sleep, you wake up the next morning, you can, you can feel the grumbling the next morning already. They wake up and think, well, maybe there's some more quail out there. Let's see if we can find some more quail. And they open their tents and they see frost on the ground. It wasn't cold enough for frost, but what, it, what, it's not, what is it? What, what is this? And that phrase, what is it, is the Hebrew word for manna. That's where the word manna comes from. Manna means, what, what is it? It's manna. It's this dry, hard flake that they found on the ground. And Moses tells them, this is the bread of heaven given to you by God for you to eat each day. And verse 31 tells us that, that the bread that they were given, it was white like coriander seed. And when they tasted it, it tasted like wafers made with honey. And however earthly this manna was that they found on the ground each morning, it was the bread come down from heaven, given to them by the one true God who controls all of creation. And I'm speculating here a little bit, but I, I just, I got to imagine that, that these Israelites who have wandered the desert for the last six weeks, they're, 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 they're pretty ingenious. They, they, they're creative, right? And I imagine somebody probably went back into their tent to, to show this, what they had, this this bread in the one hand, and, and some of the tent said, well, I've, I've got some meat left over. And they started to see a meal as the bread and the meat came together, and they, they saw the pot. And, and I don't know for sure, it's not in the Bible, but I, I would not be the least bit surprised if somebody took the quail, and they took the manna, they put it together and boiled it, and made the first chicken McNugget. I, could you see it? I, I, that's probably where it first came from. The very first McNugget happened there in the desert, right, as they did this. God's addressing the physical need. We can see that through the manna and through the quail. But what about the spiritual aspect? Well, the spiritual aspect, we see that in the manner in which the manna was to be received. We see this in verse 16. As we read from verse 16 forward, it says, This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone who is to gather as much as they need, take an omer for each person that you have in your tent. And the Israelite did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they had measured it out by the omer, the one who had gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until the morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. And they kept part of it until morning. And when they looked at it, it was full of maggots. And it began to smell. And so Moses became angry with them. (laughs) Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. Then on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much. Two omers. An omer is about three pounds. Two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community saw this happening. Hey, Moses said not to do that. So they come and they tell Moses. And Moses said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Today is to be a day of Sabbath rest, or tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy day to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left over and keep it till the morning. So they saved it till the morning and Moses, as Moses had commanded. And it did not stink and it did not have maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath of the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you're to gather it. But on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, there will not be any. Nevertheless... 
Some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Basic enough. Gather enough to sufficiently feed you and your family each day. No matter how old or how young, how big, how small, there is enough for everybody. But only take what you need. Then on the sixth day, gather enough for two days. Why would we do that? Well, because of something that you've never heard of before. Something referred to as the Sabbath day. Recall back in Genesis when we see the account of creation recorded in Genesis 1 and 2. It talks about how at the seventh day God rested. He called it the day of rest. And he blessed this day of Sabbath, this day of rest, for that reason, for that purpose. But here, in Exodus 16, is the first time that Shabbat is used as rest for humans. A further gift. A further provision given to them by God. You see, they have lived their entire lives at this point as slaves. They have no concept of, what did you call that? A weekend? What, a, day, a day off? What, what is it? A day off. A foreign concept to them up until now. And most of them do as they've been instructed. They're told to gather accordingly for each day. And all will have enough. But some fear for tomorrow. So they gather extra. They gather extra to stick in some sort of pantry. Just to look after tomorrow, for, just in case something happens tomorrow. And you see, when God provides sufficiency, and when, when God's sufficiency is received, it leads to praise. But God also knows that there's a danger in surplus. Because surplus leads to pride. And pride leads to a hard heart. And a hard heart leads to turning inward. And so God removes that from them. He removes that possible outcome from them by making their, their, their manna that they stored in their pantries crawl with maggots and stink. I guarantee you, when you took the lid off the jar and you see that, they probably didn't gather extra again after that day. I remember there's one time Nadine and I were on a trip, and she stopped in at a store to buy a bag of sour cream and onion potato chips, a little snack-sized bag. And took the first one out, delicious. Took the second one out, it was the ugliest, moldesty chip you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> in that moment, appetite's gone. Bag is crumpled, thrown out, gone. And I can tell you to, the, to, to this day, she's never bought a bag of sour cream and onion chips. That was 22 years ago <laughs> that that took place. <laughs> like, it has an impact when you see those things. But on the seventh day, this day of Sabbath, this day of rest, this day of reflection... Those who gathered extra ate and enjoyed the blessings of God. Those who didn't trust him, those who didn't obey the command, went out the next morning ready for the man, and they found the ground was bare. And they went hungry that day. But going hungry, they learned a lesson that day as well. And see, at the core of this giving of the manna, we see two primary principles that, that, that speak to conditions of the heart that govern our relationships with God. And so the first one is this, is that God wants us to trust him. He doesn't want us to hoard blessings in our lives and, and rely upon our own efforts to collect things to look after and care for ourselves. Could you imagine if God had allowed that to happen? How many days do you think would have had to pass where, where the manna is just freely available until somebody commodified it? 
until somebody decided that because it's always there and it's always available, we're going to open manna markets. Get your fresh manna here, two-for-one manna on Fridays. And all of a sudden, there will be this profiting, this self-preservation, this trusting in the self to provide of their own abilities. But no, to avoid that tendency of the human heart, God limits it to just enough for today. Because if it's just enough for today, our response becomes not trusting in the self, but it becomes, thank you, Lord, for my daily bread. Thank you, Lord, that I can trust you to provide for me today. I will trust you to provide for me tomorrow. But the second principle we see is that God wants people to obey. There's a certain manner in which it's to be collected. And if they follow the instructions, they have unlimited access to it. And if they follow the instructions, it's not just access to the blessing, it's also an opportunity for them to demonstrate their love and commitment to God. This this is similar to marriage. Those of us who are married, we know there are rules to marriage, right? And I don't mean the obvious rules. I mean, there there are rules. Like, Like, I recently learned that you can't put your gym shoes on the expensive comforter. That's not where they go. For some reason, my brain thinks that's where they go. That the proper place is on the comforter in the bedroom. It's not. <laughs> they go in the mudroom, apparently. I, I had to learn this rule. It might be obvious to some. I've also learned recently that when the toilet paper's empty, you have to, you have to replace it. That, that, that you don't wear gray sweatpants in public. Like, like there's rules that, that exist within marriages. And the marriage is not established upon these rules, but they do lead to experiencing the blessings of the relationship. And when we follow these rules, it doesn't establish the relationship, but they're the rules that lead to following and experiencing the blessings of the relationship. And when I don't put my shoes on the comforter anymore, it's also a way that I can show honor to Nadine and show her that I do love her by following these. You see, God set rules that govern his relationship with his people. And when they follow the instructions, when they obey him, it gives them access to the blessings, but also gives them an opportunity to experience to express love back to God. Thereby, the manna they received was not just daily bread to fill their stomachs, but it also had the ability to nurture their relationship with God. Does that make sense? It had both. And we see this same principle throughout the Bible, actually. We see the same principle in some of Jesus' teachings as well, as he was trying to impart this to his followers. There's one time, for example, when Jesus was off praying, and, and his disciples saw him praying, and there, there's just something different, something more intimate about the means, the manner in which he prayed and related to his heavenly Father. And so they asked him, teach us to pray like that, Jesus. And in Matthew 6, we find Jesus' response, which is the Lord's Prayer. This prayer that he, he shared to them, which is not so much about the words of the prayer as much as the model of prayer that he shared with them. A model that helps us to open up our life to experience a deeper relationship with God. That opens us up so that we can have the proper perspective to to gain a shared life, a shared focus. As we share our needs with him, we gain his perspective and will on these matters. And if you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer, you know the first line. Say the first line with me. Our Father who art in heaven. It's intentional. It's meant to start by focusing our attention, our perspective upon God. And after that follows six petitions, six requests as we seek God's power and will among the earth, but also in our lives. And among those six petitions, we find in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. And just as Israel asked in the wilderness, what is it? 
what is this daily bread? In Exodus 16, in the Lord's Prayer, and in our lives today, I can tell you what it is. It is this. It is a call to start each day with a renewed decision to obey God's will. It's a start each day with a renewed decision to follow his leading in our lives for this day. Our daily bread then in the, new, in the Lord's Prayer and now is a call to start each day trusting in God's provision for us that day. And we can get this sense that trust and obey for there's no better way is, is what the message is in this. But we can't fully understand that unless we look beyond the gift to the gift giver as well. Because you see on one level, we have legitimate needs. We have legitimate physical necessities of life that we need. Food, shelter, clothing, relations. There's, there's un- immaterial things too. Relationships and purpose and all these other necessities of life that we have. And God knows what they are and they're legitimate needs that we have. But also in keeping with the text of the passage we looked at. May God's provision to us draw us closer to him. And we can see this clearly explained and laid out in the explanation of the manna that Moses gave to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where Moses is reminding them of the manna they received and the purpose behind it. And and we can break this verse into two pieces. And we see this first in, in, in Deuteronomy 8, 3. The first part says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna. You felt the physical hunger. He gave you the physical manna. He gave you your daily bread. You had a physical need. And there's a physical aspect to the provisions that God gives us. But they are secondary in importance. Because if all we ever do is receive the physical and focus on that and don't look to the giver behind it, it leads to entitlement. It leads to grumbling. It leads to these sorts of inward, hard-hearted expressions. But that wasn't a primary concern for God because it goes on to say in the last half of the verse, he did this to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, the manna also had this spiritual aspect, this ability to draw people towards God, which is of primary importance. And so the way that we experience daily bread, we can understand it to be a metaphor then. Daily bread is a metaphor of God's goodness poured out into our lives. That has a physical aspect, but that is secondary to the spiritual purpose for which we receive it. And I think that we can understand daily bread in three ways in our lives today. Number one, we can understand it as something that we receive. Food, finances, relationships, a spiritual direction, the the presence of a friend, of another person, a kind, encouraging word. We, We can receive daily bread from God through these sorts of things. But there's also opportunities by which we can become daily bread to another person. Where we can encourage, we can serve, God can work through us to befriend a person, to challenge them, to to point them and correct them in the right direction. So we can receive daily bread, we can become daily bread. But the third way is that we can also observe and be blessed by seeing how God moved in other people's lives. We all love to hear testimonies and stories about, about how God has poured out his blessings upon people. When we look at the new life stories that we share in the service each week, when you hear the this testimony of a friend or of an early church father, for example, how God moved and provided in their lives, it builds up our faith. 
It encourages us. We are blessed by observing daily bread in their lives, and we learn and grow in our ability to trust and obey, for there is no better way. And so I want to do something a bit different right now for the last part of the message here today is I want to invite Andrew to come up. And I'm going to invite Andrew to share with us what this looks like to receive daily bread, to become daily bread, and to observe daily bread. And the experience that he and a group of people had recently as they went to Vernon to, to serve those families who had lost so much through the, through the wildfires. And one of the amazing things about these short-term mission trips is they have a physical component where we physically go do work. We are boots on the ground giving help, but they also have a spiritual aspect. A spiritual aspect where the people who go and serve leave with a deeper understanding of God, their relationship to him, and how he's revealed himself to others. So, so Andrew, would you share with us how that uh, was played out in the trip you went on? Certainly. Absolutely. So, that uh, is our team up on the TV screen there, or on the screen behind you. Uh, and so from left to right, I'll just introduce the team. I told people that I uh, took a group of seniors, and they all immediately thought that I meant senior highs. Um, and then I'm like, no, 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 like legit seniors, like legit seniors. Like they're all over 60, right? Like so real old. Um, but I'm allowed to say that because I joked with them the whole week, so they're fine. They made fun of me too. Uh, and so uh, left to right, left to right is Peter and then Andrea and then our senior, senior, Don, and then the junior, junior, Andrew, Malcolm, Myra, and then Brenda. We had to get a different angle for this picture to throw up on the screen because the one that Jacqueline had taken had Brenda standing like six feet away from everybody. And so we got it from the side and now Brenda looks like she's close to everybody. But she did love everybody by the end of the trip. Um, yeah, so that's kind of, kind of our team. Uh, and it was really fun. I actually experienced a few things along the way um, that were kind of a little bit different than uh, I expected. I was actually the grandpa driver. And so, um, not that I drove a grandpa, but I did. Um, but it was actually that I drove super slow on the way there. I was in a, like a 90 zone, and I was going 70. And I was on cruise control, and me and Dom were just chatting away, and then all of a sudden, Malcolm whips around us, because there's like 20 cars behind us that are like, what is going on here? There's 20 marks that are like, I just got back from the gym and I'm amped up on pre-workout. Like, what is going on? And so uh, Malcolm was actually the guy that sped me up. Although I found out that Malcolm wasn't the fast driver Brenda was. Brenda saw a few signs along the way that uh, were like numbered, but they weren't like a speed limit, but they were like 123. And so she went 123 kilometers an hour. She just assumed they were speed limits. And so she was just flying down the road. So we experienced that Brenda likes to get out ahead too. Um, so those are just a few little fun things about the trip that I kind of experienced that I didn't think I was going to experience. But what I'm here to share with you today are a few stories from our trip. The first one is a story about us and how God had his provision for us. This story from our trip is one where we're able to see God providing for us the provision, or if you want, the manna or daily bread that was provided to us was through the organization we actually went to serve alongside. We were received extremely well when we got there, and we were provided with things that we didn't even think that we were gonna get, and that added to our experience. Our team thought we would be sleeping kind of on a surface like this hard on the floor, right? And so when we got there though, we experienced this amazing blessing, which doesn't sound like an amazing blessing, we got a cot. This was amazing, and they were Cabela's cots, so like Trevor, one of our board members would love this, 
uh, he's a big Cabela's fan. And so Cabela's cots, they were like wide cots too. They weren't like these super narrow ones you're going to roll off of. And so that was a true blessing. And one of our team actually said that we were living in a luxurious way. Because when you go from thinking you're sleeping on the floor to off the floor on a cot, luxury. It's just a matter of perspective, I guess. <laughs> Although this is not the one instance that I wanted to share about how God has provided for us. The story is still about the organization that we served with, which is Samaritan's Purse, as you can see, but it's about what we were blessed with on the Sunday of our time away. And so they observed Sabbath, and we had the day off, but one of the other volunteers, who usually was in charge of going and walking the work sites and preparing the plan for the next day, offered to provide us with lunch. This may not sound too crazy, but on Sundays, the day off, the team kind of makes you figure your own lunch out. And we were new to Vernon, and this person had been working for weeks and could have used the day off, yet they decided to be our guide for the Sunday, driving us to lunch and taking us around to see the area where we were, and he did this all of his own accord. The best part was that we didn't really know where we were going to grab lunch that day, and we could have grabbed fast food, but we did a bunch of that on the way out. So not really what we were looking forward to, but this guy took us to a local orchard where we were, we were actually treated to lunch by the organization. And the entire mission trip was covered. It was an amazing blessing in our life. This was something that truly struck me and our team. It was a time where God's provision for us was so above and beyond what we actually expected that we could have received, that I just, I felt compelled that this was the story that I needed to share with you about the provision of God in our lives, where we went thinking we were going to serve, and this guy who's been there for weeks took his day off and served us the entire day. So that was the first way that we personally experienced the provision of God for our daily bread while we were out in Vernon. That's one story. That happened real quick. We were there for like a day and a half, and then we had a day off, so it's kind of a weird time to jump in, but it was, it was really good. But as we know, there are many ways now that you can experience God's provision. And the second story I want to share with you is one where God's provision to others is through us. So the story about our team being God's provision for others centers around our arrival. For some of you out there, you actually are probably only just hearing about this Vernon mission trip right now. And this is something you just found out about. And you could possibly be thinking, man, this church uh, kind of holds things real close to their chest. They didn't even promo a mission trip or send out anything about it. Maybe they don't even understand what promotion is. Um, well, regardless of what you think about our promotional prowess, um, this mission trip came together in less than a week from me standing up here on a Sunday and presenting it to us leaving on the following Friday at 6 a.m. And so if you missed it, it's not because we didn't try to let you know about it, it's just that we left at Friday at 6 a.m. the following week. And the perspective that the staff had going into this mission trip was, we're just gonna throw it out there and if God wants this to happen, people would come forward and we'll be ready and willing to go alongside them. So folks came out to the info meeting and signed up. Woohoo! We are in business. I'm going away. Staff meeting was like, Andrew, this would be great for you. I'm like, yes, I will take a week outside of the office and go and serve. This is great. I was excited, 
and I was taking a group of senior high, seniors with me, and so uh, that was the start of our mission trip story. And it was the beginning of God's plan to use seven of us, a couple of others from Vancouver, a couple from rural Alberta, and one young adult from Ontario. When we arrived on site, we were set up in our place to stay, and then we proceeded to have supper in the evening. Now, the room was fairly empty until we entered it that night. We were over 50% of the team that was left to serve for the rest of the time in Vernon, and the other people were like the full-time leadership teams that were left there. After supper every night, there's a time of sharing where you can just basically share what you experienced that day. It was then that we were able to hear from one of the volunteers about how our team was actually an answer to their prayer. As usually, the final week is sparse, sparse, sparse for volunteers for them. They had 15 plus work orders. That's 15 other areas they needed to serve in, serve homeowners that had lost their lives, basically. All of that they had. 15 work orders to complete and didn't know how they were going to complete them because they had to pack up by the next Saturday when we left. But God used the team from here and from all over Canada to provide a provision to Samaritan's Purse and also to those homeowners that we were able to serve in that moment. So God provided a great place for us to stay that focused on us and cared for us. And then we were immediately an answer to prayer. We were the provision in others' lives. Another way God's provision was revealed to us on the trip was in a passive way where the team and I were able to personally witness a family being the provision for those that were actually there to serve them. So the story about us witnessing the provision of God for others, by others, is about a homeowner that we thought we were there to serve, but that God revealed an even greater plan for provision. The first full day we were there was a Saturday. The first half of that day was spent doing a bunch of training, and then a lot of us volunteers, after we did our debrief this week, were like, we were just chomping at the bit to get going. Let's go do something. Like, we're here to do stuff. We know what a work site is. Let's just go and do it. But, you know, you got to get trained to do stuff safely, or you're just going to get hurt and add to the problem. But eventually, we ended up on a 500-plus acre property in a remote part of the area around Vernon. We quickly were assigned tasks of cleaning up fencing that had been burned and found there, or piling up brush that was fallen from trees. Along with that, there were people actually rolling up barbed wire. And then also, there were just people just doing some general cleanup of anything they could find in the area. However, that day, we actually were blessed with two extra teens. Haha, <laughs> my people are there with me now. All right, two extra teens helping out on the site. They were there doing community service, though. So they actually turned out were caught setting small fires in the town of Vernon, and the fire chief's talk didn't quite resonate with them, and so they were sent to show them on the Saturday what out-of-control fires could actually look like. Those two young boys, though, were amazing helpers because they were motivated and young and energetic, yet the most impactful time of that day was likely for most of the group and me, when the homeowners were presented with their Bible. And so homeowners are presented with a Bible at the end of every time we serve. 
um, them because it's their first new possession in their life and where you kind of want their life to begin from on that solid foundation. The homeowners who had just lost their entire world began to share some of their story about this property and how it was a ministry ground for hundreds of teens over the years. It was a place for troubled teens that they, as a couple, had a heart and a focus in that direction as well. The homeowners spoke directly. In a group of all of us, they turned and spoke directly to the two boys and were able to share with them that they, the homeowners, were blessed to have them there serving, but that they know that their paths will cross again and that they are always welcome at this property. And these were not just words that these people uttered, as sometimes they can kind of say, you're always welcome back, but not really actually mean it. As we were leaving, the homeowners had a mini excavator, one of the things that didn't get burned up, that one of them was using to clean up the yard. And then he stopped. He got out and proceeded to ask the two boys if they wanted to try it out. In that moment, all of us who were there, who were packing up, basically stopped, were able to turn and see the immense joy, the huge smiles that were on these two boys' faces. They were made to feel special. They were made to feel wanted, regardless of the reason for why they were actually there that day. In that moment, God's provision of love for those two boys came through the hearts of the homeowners who didn't have much left to give, but what they had, they were excited to freely share with those two boys. God's provision was received by us. We were part of God's provision plan for others, and we witnessed God's provision through those we served in Vernon. Today we've heard all about God's daily bread, provision for our lives through manna and quail. Exodus 16, 1 to 31 is where Mark kind of walked us through up to this point today. And it was my privilege to actually be up here and sharing with you guys what we did in Vernon. But I want to take a little bit of time, just a little, to look at the final few verses of Exodus 16 here. So if you'll turn with me to the final few verses, Exodus 16, 32 through 35. I don't know what page it is in the Pew Bible, but if you've already found the other stuff, you probably can find this one. And so these are what they say. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, classic rolls downhill situation. Um, So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to, to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. In this passage, God asks Moses to get Aaron to create a symbol of provision for the people. But why? They've just lived it. The manna that is gathered is placed with the covenant law to be kept at the forefront of where the people would look for God's presence. The symbol was there 
so that when future generations of Hebrew-speaking people come along and pointed at the symbol, they'd ask, manna? Manna? Basically, as Mark's pointed out already, manna means, what is it? What is it? They would ask, what is it? The symbol is used as a reminder that provides a beginning point for sharing about the daily call to rely on God's provision for their life. Do we have a symbol now? What symbol or practice or habit do I or you have in our life that the next generation can point to and be compelled to ask, manna, what is it? Or what is it that is different? Because out of that simple question can come the retelling of how God has provided in our lives through the one and only bread of life. So that we are always called back to focus on the one who is the only true source of all life that we need, Jesus. Pretty good Sunday school answer, Jesus. As we close, I want to issue a two-part challenge to each of us here today, myself included, to look at our lives and see if there is a place where others can point to, and if they ask, what is it? we're able to answer, it is God's daily provision in my life through Jesus. And the second part of this challenge is to strive to become even more aware of the provisions in the lives of others all around us so that we can be more and more aware of God working in and through the lives of others. And as we strive towards these two things, knowing what our symbol is and looking for it in others, I'm convinced that it will, it will draw each of us and this entire church into a deeper awareness of God's constant presence in our lives and the lives of those all around us. And isn't that the something that we want to look forward to. To be able to truly and to fully experience the words that we often sing in one of our songs here that I'm not going to sing for you now, but, are, but is this. There's nothing worth more that could ever come close. No thing can compare. You're our living hope, your presence, Lord. Amen.